Now we're going to discover the secrets of a place known as one of the crown jewels of surfing, one of the greatest surfing breaks in the world. The waves off the fishing village of Grajagan in East Java are legendary. For decades, Grajagan was only accessible by boat because of the dense jungle that's at the water's edge. Jungle that in the early 70s was inhabited by panthers and the now extinct Javan tiger. The story of the young surfers who first encountered Grajagan is told in the book Grajagan Surfing in the Tiger's Lair. And the co-authors of what's billed as the verified and authentic origin story of G-Land, as it's also known, are with you now. Mike Ritter is an author and surf historian. For 18 years, from the late 1960s, Mike explored the world's great surf spots funded by marijuana smuggling. The law eventually caught up with Mike in 2005, and after two years in federal prison, he graduated from university and embarked on a career as a surfing writer. Mike joins us now from California. We're also joined by Jack McCoy, a legendary figure in surf filmmaking. Jack was born in LA, raised in Hawaii, and he now lives in Australia on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, which is where Jack joins us from. Gentlemen, welcome to RN. Aloha. Thank you. Here I am in California. Fantastic. Mike, could you describe Grajagan for us and what makes it so special? Well, sure. Certainly the wave is special. I mean, every surfer will tell you that, but it's much more than just a wave. It's a place that really is spiritually charged. It is a sanctuary for uh, wild animals, and it is a revered place for Indonesians. You know, now we think about Indonesians as being either Muslim or Hindu now, but, you know, before religion came to Indonesia, uh, they had strong animist beliefs. And as we all know, animism is a belief that uh, there's a life force in rocks and trees and whatever. And uh, the Grajagan Peninsula is located on a remote corner of southeast Java and has been kept as a nature preserve for, you know, decades, if not hundreds of years. But what is special about the place is that feeling, that special feeling of uh, wildness and spiritually charged. The Indonesians have a name for it. It is Anker, is the name they give to it. And uh, to Indonesians, you don't go into a place that is Anker, or especially into the Grajagan wilderness, unless you have special purpose. That special purpose is uh, either to increase your life force or to make some devotion there. And uh, so I think that in addition to the way that it's especially spiritual charged atmosphere, the wild animals and the remoteness of it that makes it special. And it certainly seems that 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 specialness, which has been part of the place and with its local people for ages, was spread in an intoxicating way to adventurous surfers in the 1970s. Mike, how did you come to be in Kuta in 1971 and then to hear about and eventually see Grajagan? Well, I was one of those young travellers that were uh, more or less everywhere in the late 60s and early 70s. I found my way down the hippie trail. That's the, the iconic pilgrimage that, you know, young people and hippies were taking in the late 60s and early 70s from Europe to Afghanistan to India and uh, Nepal and eventually to Bangkok. And when I was in Bangkok, I heard about Bali, this really incredible place. I had, you know, the beaches, the the volcanoes, everything about it. And I said, I had to go there. I hadn't heard anything about the surf at all at that time, but just this incredible stories that I was hearing 
drove me, you know, intoxicated me with the desire to, to find out for myself. And I first arrived there, I think it was in March of 71. Uh, and it was not to go surfing. It was just to see this incredible place. But as soon as you got to the beach there in Kuta and saw the thumping waves and saw the conditions, you knew that this was a surf wonderland. It took a couple of years for us, you know, to graduate from Kuta Beach Breaks to Kuta Reef, then to Uluwatu. And in fact, Uluwatu uh, was first surfed by Australians. And, uh, you know, we felt somewhat like we had been taken by them. So we wanted to be the first to someplace else. And we had no information about Grajagun at that time. But if you looked at a map or particularly a marine chart of the era, you would see that the shape of the Uluwatu Peninsula was much like the shape of the Blambangan, the Grajagun Peninsula, except that at Grajagun, it was much bigger. Um, and so we started making plans to go there. Also, uh, various people who had flown into Bali, flying over Java, looked down and saw this incredible wave wrapping around that point. <laughs> Jack was one of those people. So all these things combined, and we realized that we were going to make a trip there. And Jack, let's talk about how you discovered Grajagan. And I understand from the book that when you got to Bali, Mike didn't want you to know about it. Why was that? Uh, well, you know, surfers were a bit crafty back in the day. Well, they still are about special spots and special places. I saw Uluwatu on the film Morning of the Earth that came out in 1972. And immediately needed to get there. The maker of the film, Albert Feldson, was a friend of mine and told me I'd enjoy it. And so in 1973, I did make a trip there to Bali. Uh, I didn't discover Grajagan and never claimed to. I, I heard about it that first year in 1973, but it wasn't until 1974, after the first Hobie Cat trip with a guy named Bob Jones, Abdul, and uh, Ray Lee had been there the year before. And, you know, the word kind of crept out a little bit then, and uh, I was aware of it. Uh, you know, as early as 73, the first year I was there. And I'd met Mike in 74. And, uh, you know, he was the one who, when they, he missed a dinner that they were having of a few people who had been, they decided on that night they were going to give the place a name, a secret code name. And they ended up calling it G-Land. And Mike turned up the next day to find out that's what they were going to call it. And he said, I can't believe you're going to call it G-Land. It's Grajigan, you know, and so Mike, uh, Mike's been a protector of the place, uh, you know, from the moment he first went there, he was kind of tight-lipped and, you know, kept his cards close to his chest. And obviously, uh, you know, you can't keep a secret like that for long. So uh, pretty soon they were making more and more trips and more and more surfers were going. That was about 75. 76 when there were turtle boats going back and forth from Bali to Grajigan. On RN, we're speaking with the authors of Grajigan, Surfing in the Tiger's Lair, Mike Ritter and Jack McCoy. 
And, Mike, it was certainly a pretty wild time. Something of the flavour of it, I think, is caught by the subtitle of one of your earlier books, Surfers, Scammers and the Untold Story of the Marijuana Trade. A seminal figure in the book is Mike Boyum. Could you tell us about Mike and some of the the less savoury side of things that were driving this surfing exploration in the 70s? You know, Mike is one of the strangest creatures or strangest humans I've met, and I think others say that as well, Mike Boyum. <laughs> I met him uh, on my first trip to Bali. A American Peace Corps worker gave me his name as someone who liked to eat the strange fruit durian. So uh, I had Mike's address. I walked up to his house and introduced myself. He handed me a couple durian and then waved me off with a brush of his hand. So he was the type of person that could be very, very charming if he wanted to, but would cut you off just like that if he felt that you could be of no use to him. He was an incredibly charismatic person if he wanted to be. He could meet anyone at any level of society or connected to any business that there was. He just had that knack for meeting, getting on their good side, finding out what it was that they liked and then using that as a keyhole to, you know, to perhaps talk them out of some money. But he was a hell of a fun guy to be with as well. I traveled all over Asia, Southeast Asia and India, uh, Afghanistan with Mike Boyum, and we had a wonderful time. I think what saved me was that I never invested money with Mike Boyum. Uh, We did a few small uh, cannabis smuggling operations on our own but I never gave him a lot of money, and so we always had fun together. Could you tell us a bit more, Mike Ritter, about Mike Boyum's obsession with making G-Land the world's first surf camp? You know, he had something like that in mind. Mike Boyum had something like a surf camp or a health camp in mind. From the first time I met him, he was very much into physical fitness and diet, being a superior human being in the sense of, athletic ability. His first idea was to get one, a big barge, a floating barge, and outfit it as a, you know, something like a mini hotel. He was going to tow that around to various surf spots and live on it. And that would be his surf camp. Another idea he had was to build a training camp out by Uluwatu. He was looking for investors, as I said, among a wide variety of people. I mean, ordinary business people to to wacky, wealthy kids. And he found a location out there at Uluwatu that he wanted to build a surf camp, uh, a training camp at, but uh, property out there was unavailable for sale at that time. So he dropped the idea of Uluwatu, but he always had that idea in mind that he wanted to build a training camp. And it was really more of a training camp than just a surf camp. So when we first went to uh, Java, he saw uh, the place that would work for him uh, at Grajagan, at the Blambangan Peninsula. And uh, Mike was also very clever about being able to work the back scenes routes to business in Indonesia. He had a way with, you know, talking to Indonesians and finding out what they would want to allow him to do whatever he wanted to. Um, and so he, he used the back channels to get into Grajagan. But he, you know, I think, truthfully, it was with the intent to form a surf camp and have something very special there. And I think also he liked working with uh, very talented athletes, great athletes, in his case, great surfers. 
And uh, all these things came together for Mike at Grajagon. Jack, the subtitle of the book is Surfing in the Tiger's Lair, and you write about the time you actually came face-to-face with a tiger. Can you tell us about that? We'd heard big cats, you know, roar in the middle of the night. We had also heard of stories of tigers coming through the camp. It's in what was called the South Camp, which is a double story. I was up sleeping on the top. And I heard some noise down below. What we used to do is bring in big tins, like gallon tins of uh, fruit juice and things. And we always, anything we took into the jungle, we made sure we took out. So we'd finish it one of these big tins. The boys would wash it out. Then they'd store it in one of the little rooms down below from where I was sleeping. And this wasn't the most secure building, so if someone was walking down on the lowered level, you could feel the building sort of sway a little bit. And I woke up one night, and I felt like someone was downstairs walking. And then I heard whatever was down there making this racket with this pile of tin cans. And I'm going, hey, shut up down there. We're trying to sleep, you know. And I looked over the edge and shined my flashlight, and I was looking eyeball to eyeball with a 300-pound cat, you know. Wow. I turned the light off and, and just sort of held my breath, and uh, it was quite a moment, I can tell you. It, you know, I'm a believer, you know, there's you know, these tigers here in the jungle. He then swayed across the lower level, down the little stairway, and sat kind of about, oh, 10, 20 feet behind the building, And he'd taken one of the tin cans with him in his mouth, obviously, and he was playing with it, batting it around like a little kitten, you know, just going, what is this thing, you know? And and he did that for about 10, 15 minutes, and then the jungle went silent, and I kind of tried to go back to sleep, you know? (laughs) What an amazing story. The book also recounts the different rhythms of engagement that Balinese surfers had with Grajagan. Jack, could you tell us about that? Well, the Balinese, originally, when we first got to Bali, were afraid of the sea. And the parents didn't really like their young kids going down surfing because they thought the sea would swallow them up. They had a goddess called Rural Pedor, and she was the mermaid who would come and take fishermen as a sacrifice. When fishermen disappeared, it was always attributed to this mermaid type creature later and so it took the families a while to about their young kids you know going surfing but you can't keep you know surfing away from people once you ride a wave you're hooked you know i like to think that when you ride your first wave a little spirit enters your body and you become a totally different human being and Mm. that's what happened with the balinese and they respected the ocean they would always make an offering before they go out and you know some of the early Balinese surfers in around the late 70s and early 80s started to come and you know enjoy the fruits of the labor and mostly it was Mike inviting them Mike did a lot to promote Indonesian surfing he started the Bali Surfing Club he needed the club also to help him get the permits that were needed in order to uh, take people to Grajigan but it was very special. We always tried to take one or two of the Balinese surfers with us on any of the campaigns that we went into there. 
And one of the really appealing parts of the book is that you really do recount in detail the, the position of Grajagan in traditional myth and legend and also the long history of the, the rulers of that place over many periods. Mike, is that something that you were across at the time when you were surfing and smuggling drugs around the, the location as well? No, actually, you know, um, that history and uh, that information about Indonesians are from questions that I always had when I was there, I, I never found the answers to questions like, you know, what is the natural history of Indonesia? What is, you know, when did the first people come there? Uh, that's the reason that I researched that and why I included it in the book. In the line, I was reading about a history that another author was doing, and he referred to it as big history. Big history, where you give the a little bit about the history of everything. And that was my motivation. It's a very engaging account, and you certainly cover the breadth of Involvegan, which I suppose leads to the question, why does your book about a mythical Indonesian surf spot mention Charlie Chaplin and Bill Murray? <laughs> That's a good question, too. I think, uh, well, to be frank, for one reason, you know, perhaps to sell more books. Also, <laughs> That's very honest. <laughs> also, for another reason, to show the, the breadth of, of uh of, uh, you know, the interest in Grajagan, that it was not just hardcore surfers that found the place fascinating, but, you know, a, a broad spectrum of people would also find it interesting. It was in the 20s or the 30s where the Dutch colonial government decided that they were going to turn Bali into a, you know, a tourist island. Of course, there wasn't mass tourism at that time. Tourism was something for the wealthy and for the elite. And they began advertising Bali. And, uh, you know, a few Hollywood people went there, and Charlie Chaplin was one of those people. That's about it for Charlie uh, Chaplin. Yeah, Charlie Bill Chaplin Murray. didn't surf Grajagan, did he? <laughs> no, he did not. I don't think he even went to Grajagan. And I don't no, even no, know no. if he surfed he, Bali. But No, no, he wasn't involved with that. He was mostly connecting with an artist there called Walter Spies. And Walter was, uh, you know, a famous artist and still is today. His paintings are quite valuable. But he was a socialite as well, and he used to wine and dine those sort of people. And Charlie Chaplin did spend a bit of time in Bali, uh, and I think he went a couple of times. As far as Bill Murray's concerned, during the first writer's strike, which was in the early 80s, he came to Australia to promote one of his films he was doing, and then he went to Bali. And he was there, and he met Mike Boyum, and he met a surfer named Rory Russell, and they invited him. They said, oh, we're going to go uh, surfing at, at Padang tomorrow. So they took him out there, put him on a boogie board. He almost got lost and drifted out <laughs> to sea. He came in, got beat up in the shore break. And he heard that they were going to Grajigan, and he said, going to this other place, he said, well, you're not going without me, I'm coming. So they let him tag along, and he lived there in the jungle for about 10 days, um, just, you know, in awe of the whole thing. And they taught him how to surf on a little reef on the inside reef orbit at high tide. And there's actually pictures of him in our book of him riding his first, you know. And he was, he had a reputation during the filming and of Caddyshack, of really giving the crew a hard time, and they called him Big Bad Billy. And when he was about to leave, he turned to Rory and to Mike and said, well, you know, that trip has changed my life. Big Bad Billy is now Sweet William. And uh, <laughs> that was how he left the place. And he still talks about it. He loved it. 
Yes, one of many people who've obviously got an enduring affection for and a sense of connection with Gradjagan. One of the really striking things about the story you tell about those early days is the sort of pioneering exploration aspect of finding a new place for surfers to explore. Gradjagan's changed a lot these days. What's it like today? What's Gradjagan like today? It's... Uh more like a Fellini movie. There's three surf camps there that hold up up to a hundred surfers each. And during the season, it's pretty well booked the whole time. They've actually cut a big road in through the jungle so that they can get Javanese tourist buses up there to go take selfies with the surfers who are out here in the jungle. The Javanese are very fascinated with surfing and they love to go out there and just take selfies. And so it's commercial um, white man stamp has certainly uh, taken place there. It's, it's, it's the same as everywhere. You know, I grew up in Hawaii. I saw Hawaii change. I came to Australia. I saw Noosa Heads change and all the surf spots. And when I went to Bali in 1973, Kuda was just a coconut grove and fishing village. And, I go back there now, and it's uh, it's an even bigger Fellini movie. You know, it's just. Uh, but the Balinese, the Balinese are still the same. The Balinese, and the Indonesian people are still the same. They're very beautiful and spiritual, and just always have. They almost sing when they talk. Hello, you know, and it's a magical spiritual place for me, Bala, and, and especially Grajigan. In all my years of surfing, um, I've been around the world and been to many, many places. But for me, my greatest memories in surfing are spending my time there at Grajigan with a few friends. It's an amazing story, vividly recounted in Grajigan, surfing in the Tiger's Lair. Mike Ritter and Jack McCoy, thanks so much for joining us on RN. Thank you for having us. We were speaking there with Mike Ritter, author and surf historian, joining us from California, and legendary surfing filmmaker Jack McCoy, who was born in LA, raised in Hawaii, and now lives on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. The book is Gradjagan, Surfing in the Tiger's Lair. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.